Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back to Stimulate Your Mind, everyone. Today we'll be looking at the Armenia-Azerbaijan issue, which has been going on for a few months now, and you might have heard of it on social media, but there's not much information coming in, and there's not much coverage of the issue. I'm joined by Jay Tharapel once again, who loves to cover conflict, <laughs> and Mia Shuha. Thank you very much for joining us today. So Mia is an honours graduate of the University of Sydney and her honours thesis was on the South Caucasus. So Mia, we'll start with you. What is the Armenia-Azerbaijan issue all about and are there any pre-existing tensions between the two nations? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, Armenia and Azerbaijan are two republics in the South Caucasus. Uh, Armenia is landlocked and has borders with Turkey, Iran, Georgia and obviously Azerbaijan. And um, as well as the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, they call themselves Artsakh. So there are two names that are commonly used. Azerbaijan um, has borders with Russia, Georgia, and Iran, and they have access to the Caspian Sea as well. Um, So the South Caucasus also includes Georgia, and there are disputed territories there. So there are three main countries. They um, they have a borderless history. Um, so like they had a history of decentralization a little over a hundred years ago, um, where there was like a big mosaic of different ethnic peoples living side by side. And Armenia has a history there dating back to like you know 5000 BC. They've got a very ancient history there, and as well as in Anatolia, the whole area was more recently by Persia and then taken over by Russia, Imperial Russia. At the, during the fall of the Ottoman, um, Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire, these three states kind of had to carve out a bit of land for themselves. So that's how you have Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan first, like for the first time declaring their independence in the early 1920s. And that also coincided with the Soviet Union taking over the region. So that's where you have Armenia, they have these lands of Nahachivan, as well as Nakonokarabakh. The Soviet authorities decided that these two parts of Armenia would be allocated to Azerbaijan. And it was done to appease uh, Turkey, Kamala's Turkey. And so that's, that's when from the 1920s up until the fall of the Soviet Union, they lived in relative peace. But Nahachivan and Nakorokarabakh or Artsakh were allocated to Azerbaijan. So that's where, that's like the, the background of the conflict. The vast majority of Nakorokarabakh were Armenian and they contested that decision ever since. So it was never really, um, like they, it was never ceded. It was just like, okay, you guys are going to be governed by Azerbaijan, but you can still be like a autonomous oblast. Then, um, do you want me to continue? Yes, please. In the 90s? All right. So then with the fall of the Soviet Union, all of these repressed nationalist sentiments from the Azuri and the Armenian side just exploded. The Armenians, they, um, well, the uh, population of Nakorokarabakh, they had a referendum uh, in order to secede from Azerbaijan. That, um, they declared independence before Azerbaijan did in 1991. So you know, based on the Soviet laws, they should be able to be an independent state if they've declared independence before uh, Azerbaijan has, like the main state governing them. But that was just rejected flat out by uh, Azerbaijan. The um, Azeri population also kind of rejected the referendum. 
that led to the first war in the 90s, 1991, where um, Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war. Armenia was backed by Russia and Iran. Um, Iran supplied weapons. Russia was more active. And because of um, internal destabilize, like internal like political strife in Azerbaijan, Armenia just won the war flat out. And they took some, some territory around Nagorno-Karabakh that they wanted to keep as buffer zone territory. During that period as well, there was a massive like exchange of populations between them. So there were many Armenians from Sumgayat and from Baku who were expelled. They had to like, you know, leave and go to Armenia because of pogroms. There were also Armenians that fled from Nahachivan, the other territory that was given to Azerbaijan. And there were around like 200,000 Armenians that were displaced by that war as well. That's where you also have the Azuri side, where around 600 to 700,000 were expelled through that war. So that's why there's this, there's this like legacy on the Azuri side of having their land stolen from them. Well, in reality, both sides have lost a lot during that decision. Armenians were a big part of Baku. They were completely displaced, you know. They had no access to that major city, which is a big, like, um, oil-supplying city, like, because uh, it's right on the Caspian Sea. So, yeah, for the last 30 years, Azerbaijan has been building their military capabilities all over again with help from Turkey and with Israel, also from Russia. Russia has been um, selling weapons to both sides, to Armenia at a discount and to Azerbaijan without a discount at a higher price. And then I think the Armenians never expected the war would come again. And it just hit them now during COVID, the US elections, all of this chaos happening. The Azeris started, like, decided to attack them using drones and missiles supplied by Israel and Turkey. And it basi they basically crumbled. And, like, I mean, understandably, they also had uh, like mercenaries from Syria. It's a bit heavy-handed, in my opinion, like all of these forces. And Iran and Russia were reluctant to step in on Armenia's side. A lot has changed in the past 30 years. Like uh, Azerbaijan has developed their oil supply. They're supplying 5% of Europe's oil now. And so um, Russia wants in on that action, basically. They also want to be seen as a neutral party in the South Caucasus. And Iran has like a giant Azuri minority. They have like a 20% Azuri minority. They, I don't think they want to upset that group of people because they might want to secede and then join Azerbaijan. That's right. So that's why Armenia was basically left on its own. And yeah, we can see like the outcome now. Some uh, Armenians are happy with the outcome saying they could have lost more if Russia and Russia, Azerbaijan, and the Armenian government didn't declare this peace deal that was declared on Tuesday. Others insist, no, we had it in the bag. We could have kept fighting. This is a betrayal. Mm -hmm. So now there's internal strife in Armenia. Azeris are happy. They've like collected a lot of their land back. And that's where we're at today. And there's like still ongoing developments over how it's like unfolding, the peace deal. So Jay, once again, mm. Israel's there. <laughs> Yeah, well, they're the, um, they're selling like drone equipment to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a is a kind of um, it's also a forward base against Iran. So if Israel is embedded in Azerbaijan, they can also kind of spy on the Iranians as well. 
And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Azerbaijan exports a lot of its oil to Israel. So Azerbaijan is part of Israel's energy security as well as Iraqi Kurdistan. So that's like the benefit there. But going back to what you were saying, I mean, it's, it's a relatively uncontroversial uh, conflict for me to take a side on because the Soviet Union basically just had one job, which is to draw a line between Azeri populations and Armenian populations. And even now, if you go to Google Maps, you can see very clearly that the parts of what's legally internationally considered to be Azerbaijan um, that are claimed by Armenia, they have Armenian names, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's a very clear uh, demarcation when, the, when those Armenian names turn into Azerbaijani yeah. or Azeri names. And it's, it basically can only be explained as, as a political appeasement at that time to, as you mentioned, Kamalist Turkey. Mia, back to you. What is the Armenian claim that the autonomous region of Karabakh is Armenian? That region, now it's, it's populated by 150,000 ethnic Armenians. Back in uh, 1926, um, it was still uh, 89.1% Armenian, and there was 10% uh, Azeris. That didn't stop the Soviet Union from just granting it to Azerbaijan, purely, like Jay says, to appease Turkey. And that and that like um, that population of Armenians were never happy with that. They never agreed for that to be the case. You know, even now, if you want to like sign off land, it has to be a peace deal to make it long lasting. Isn't that the case? Like none of that even like it wasn't the case. It was never like agreed by the pop like the majority of people living there. I don't think there were any hard borders in the Russian Empire um, between different nations because. You had uh, a very mixed region, the South Caucasus. As you mentioned, Armenians were quite prominent in Baku, which is now the capital of Azerbaijan. Um, and so how do, you cre- how do you draw borders in a very ethnically mixed region like that? You can either have like a, like a, like a multi-ethnic federation with like rights for everyone, or you can draw hard borders. Okay, if you're going to draw hard borders, then you have to adhere to some kind of a formula, right? Like majority, if it's like majority one ethnic group, then they should be joined to a contiguous state, something like that. But, yeah, those, those principles weren't applied. Yeah, it's also, the fa- like, um, there's evidence of Armenians existing there since, like, you know, like, the second century BC. Like, there's old, like, um, fortresses, old cemeteries. The same sorts of um, cultural sites existed in Nahachivan, and they've been completely destroyed by the Azuri occupation there. And so that's why Armenians, like, not only do they say, look, there's evidence of our existence on that land until now, like around over 4,000 cultural sites throughout the region, including Kalbajar and Lachin. Like, they also say, look at this, like, precedent of what's happened in Nahachivan. They could never go back there. Armenians are banned from Azuri land based on their last names, and their cultural sites have been completely erased. Or they say that they're Caucasian Albanian. It's like a way to kind of just like erase Armenian presence there. If they decide to keep them, they change the history of them, who's who created them in the first place, these cultural sites. Is this region recognized by any country at the moment? That's the thing. It isn't. And it isn't even recognized by Armenia proper itself because they tried to have this strategy where they would get other countries to recognize it first, so kind of like increasing legitimacy. Yeah. But 
like there's a lot to be said about Armenian management of this conflict. Like they haven't done themselves many favors, especially since like Azerbaijan's been building up their military capabilities. Armenians have been having like, you know, revolutions and kind of dealing with internal strife. They haven't um, obviously haven't like been as invested in this potential for war and they haven't recognized land. It isn't recognized by any state. Except for um, the smaller states of um, Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia, which are in Georgia, they all they have a similar history trying to break away from Georgia. Ali, did you know that Pakistan doesn't even recognize Armenia as a country? It's no, a favor to Turkey. <laughs> yeah, as a favor. <laughs> yeah, it's insane, huh? These conflicts become more and more wild as they progress. Yeah, not sure what their reason is, but. Look, as you were saying before, I think there's also something to be said about um, the fact that in the United States, the Armenians have a very powerful lobby, okay? But during the Syrian war, they didn't really leverage their, their power and influence to oppose the proxy war against Syria. Now, what happens when proxies that are fighting against Syria are unemployed because they've lost, because the Syrian Arab army has won? You've got large numbers of unemployed males in Turkey for the Turkish government, this is a problem. It's a security risk because what if they decide to bring their agenda to Turkey, right? So this means that after the Syrian war ends or like towards the end of the Syrian war, the Armenians should be very, very cautious about what's going to happen. What, what are all these surplus fighters going to do? Like we've seen this in the past, right? Like in Afghanistan in the 1980s, uh, there was, uh, you know, the, the Saudis, the CIA, Pakistan, they backed a so-called jihad. They funded the so-called Mujahideen to fight against the Afghan government. Now, what happened after the Afghan government collapsed? You have all of these mercenaries who have been collected from all over the world. Where do they go, right? So many of them went to, went to Kashmir in India and fought there. It's very similar to what's happening here, you know. So many of the people who, are being, who previously fought against the Syrian government are being shipped over to to fight against the Armenians. But this is something that I think, you know, if, if there's to be a lessons learned type of introspection within the Armenian community, particularly in the West, there needs to be some recognition that uh, the war in Syria was, was something that the Armenians had a stake in. Because mm -hmm. there's Armenians in Syria as well, you know, like Aleppo, large numbers of Armenians there. Yeah, I've been keeping up with the Armenians of Syria page, and it's like a lot of the news is going straight to them. And many Armenians from Aleppo have direct ties to Armenia. They go to and fro, like they have family there. I think like Armenians could do a lot by just mirroring what Turkey's doing. Like, you know, look at what happened in North, North Cyprus. They were, they were claiming, look, we have a, like a population of ethnic Turks or a mm. Turkish population that are under threat. We need to protect them. Let's go and fight. And then like, didn't Turkey recognize Northern Cyprus? Yeah, only two countries recognize Northern Cyprus, Turkey and Azerbaijan. I mean, like, I mean, it could have started by recognizing their own claim to yeah. land, you know? Yeah. Plus, Turkey has been a ma like a massive player in Syria, you know? Like, if the, if the Armenians can understand the seriousness of Turkey's, like, expansionist aims, then they could have seen that and said, we have to talk, we have to speak out against this. Yeah. This is another, it's like another example of Turkey being aggressive towards a neighbor. A lot of countries in that region have an interest in forming a, a balancing coalition to counter Turkey. Greece, Syria, Armenia, those, in, those countries in particular. Because Turkey has expansionist ambitions, it has 
neo-Ottoman rhetoric in the form of, you know, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So a balancing coalition would be necessary in this situation, but that solidarity has been missing, you know. So, for example, Greece, uh, because of its own internal problems, you know, with the Eurozone crisis, was not able to use its voice in defense of Syria, whereas had it been stronger, had all of its internal problems not been anywhere near as bad, maybe it would have. So I think, yeah, um, the, the failure to speak up for Syria when it was under attack by neo-Ottomanism has led to a lot of these problems. Yeah, it, there was a bit of it there with Kesab. That was a, like a massive campaign, mm. Save Kesab. Kim Kardashian posted about it. She did, know? yeah. That could have developed into something else, like look at the whole conflict and what's happening. You know, yeah. Syria is yeah. a good example of like a... A secular or a pluralist country where religions coexist, like will have coexisted. Yeah, you know they they could see that that's a worthy cause. But no, it didn't really. I mean, even I saw this. I saw this with the with the Assyrians as well. I mean, when the Assyrians were being massacred in 2014 in in Iraq, yeah. um, many of them took to the streets. They protested, but they wanted nothing to do with the Shia resistance. They yeah. wanted nothing they to wanted do with their, their Hezbollah. And, and even more, like, um, they invited people like uh, Fred Nile to deliver, to deliver speeches. Now, Fred Nile supported the invasion of Iraq, which created the power vacuum for the emergence of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, yeah. which is now the cause of their troubles. So, you know, the, there has to be a lessons learned, and unfortunately, I don't see that happening. Do you think there's a lack of understanding of the way things have progressed in the region? Yeah, because they, they, there has to be a recognition that all of these different conflicts are interrelated. You know? So if um, uh, the, the war against Syria ultimately affected Iraq. So I, I know Iraqis, um, I know one Iraqi actually, who like uh, when the war, when, when the Syrian government was being uh, demonized by the Western media, uh, they, they decided to attack the Syrian government. And I thought this was odd. I thought, you know, the people that the Syrian government are fighting against are the same people that Iraq has been fighting against since like 2005, you know, like when the Iraqi civil war between the Sunnis and the Shiites started. You know, I don't want to get into that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that a lot of these conflicts are related. So there's a lot of countries and a lot of nations within countries that have an interest in balancing this expansionist neo-Ottoman agenda. Um, just to go back to the original question, so what's Armenia's claim to the land? I just want to say that it's also for the population in Nagorno-Karabakh, it's a self-determination issue. Like they declared independence before Azerbaijan did. Like it was the Nagorno-Karabakh independent oblast that declared independence with a referendum that was rejected by the Azuris in favor of a war. So like for them, it's it's rooted in that in that course of action. And also, like, I just want to say that because uh, Armenia is in Russia's kind of sphere of influence, there's no real, like, uh, push to, to recognize the land. Like, since, um, since Karabakh declared independence, nine other countries have declared independence and been recognized around the world. And these ones are like include Serbia and Kosovo and Slovakia, Montenegro, Czech. Like these are more aligned with US and NATO goals, you know, the destruction of Yugoslavia. Kosovo is recognized by Turkey. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it's just, if you flip it the, like, the opposite way, you can see that it's just, it's unfair in my opinion. It's like obvious injustice between how those claims and, and Karabakh has, have been handled or even covered by mm. the media. So on what basis does Azerbaijan claim that this territory is theirs? Well, Azerbaijan 
they claim that the land surrounding Harappa, like the buffer zone land, should be returned to them. And they have like, I mean, that's, it's like, I can see that that is a legitimate claim because of like the large population of Azuris that had to flee. But then again, again, there was a referendum because the majority of the land were Armenian and wanted to be part of Armenia that was rejected. So that, and then the war that followed and like this really hostile rhetoric, particularly from Azerbaijan, kind of makes it impossible for these two people to live side by side. And if you look at those surrounding buffer zone lands, Kelpachar and Lachin and the Southland, like if you hand those territories over to Azerbaijan, it creates like a security issue for Armenia. It's like you have these two separate countries and then you have another country separated from Azerbaijan. Like it's, it's for, for like, yeah, it, it just creates more problems in the geography of that region, especially if they're still militarized and they still want to take over more of the land. So yeah, Azerbaijan claimed that there have been no negotiations from the Armenian side regarding the land surrounding um, parts like Uber-Karabakh. Does this uh, land surrounding that that region have any benefit to the other nations that have their hand in this conflict? Uh, I think the, the the issue of the land is because the Turks have this, so Turks, Turkey, the nation of Turkey, um, has this uh, desire, I think, to create a contiguous uh, stretch of territory that unites all of the, the that unites the pan-Turkic world. So you've got like, you know, the, the eastern pan-Turkic countries, right? Like, you know, the Stans, the Central Asian countries, right? Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Not Tajikistan, which is uh, actually, they're, they're more Persian. They speak a dialect of Persian. And then, yeah, like to connect that with Azerbaijan and Turkey, but Armenia stands in the, in the way. Yeah. And so now I think they've, they've solved that problem because they have, the, they have like a really, really thin strip of territory, which also means that... Iran is kind of encircled, aren't they? Well, that's the thing. It's undecided about, like, because Iran is Armenia's greatest ally. Yeah, they, they has conduct been, yeah. a lot of trade. I, do, I doubt Armenia would have trade or would have signed away that ally, like having access to Iran. Yeah. I think that that land bridge is, like, kind of disputed. That's I mean, just currently in dispute. Yeah. I saw conflicting things. I wasn't too sure, but that was what I, what I was watching was in, the, was in the middle of the war. So, yeah. Not sure how it's going to be settled. Yeah, I think that like Armenia will maintain ties with Iran, be able to trade by Iran, but then the Azeris and Turks will still have that land bridge from Nahachivan to I see. mainland uh, Azerbaijan. Yeah. They've already planned to build a railway <laughs> you know, yeah. in between, as and, they would. And the thing is, yeah, like in this, in this conflict, I think uh, Iran has been like really the only country that's been in a position to help the Armenians. Is that correct? See, look, this is the thing with Iran. This is kind of like the elephant in the room is that Israel has been using Azerbaijan for intel, for like surveillance, to test military equipment. That's what happened in this war. They tested uh, Israeli drones on like, you know, the civilian infrastructure in Karabakh, you know. Like, um, I think like, some sources from the US have claimed that like the US military have been watching what's happening, kind of like, you know, like a, it's like an experiment about modern day warfare. Um, so Iran is wary of that. There's also the fact that they have this giant, like this really huge, like Azuri minority 
in the northwest of Iran. They don't want to antagonize them. Like the Iranian government doesn't want to, you know, give them like, like fuel for any like um, I don't know, kind of like secessionist. Is that even a word? Secessionist. secessionist that's like, the word you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. secessionist <laughs> like ambitions. So that's why they wouldn't. They I I can imagine. Like I can understand why they wouldn't come out in support of Armenia. It's like not like 30 years ago. Like Azerbaijan is more kind of organized and they have these backers like Israel and Turkey. So that's why they were they were totally neutral, trying to stay neutral. I, I heard that there was a built up of Iranian like um, troops on the on the northern border. There was like lots of um, Azeri misfires into um, Iranian territory and some drones were shot down as well. The issue is that now that Azerbaijan has taken over basically the whole border of Nagorno-Karabakh and Iran, this territory is just like more land that can be used by Israel if they want yeah. to conduct like you know surveillance or anything like that. So, yeah, Israel has kind of been like like, you know, silent actor in this war, but there's this whole overarching kind of issue as to what could happen next with this land that's now like under control of like Azerbaijan and their backers, Turkey and Israel, plus the uh, Azeri population that live there as well. So what about Russia? What's the scale of their involvement in this issue? Well, now, I mean, this um, peace deal that was declared, I think, I'm sorry, like on Tuesday, peace deal that was declared on the 10th, 10th. yeah. Yeah, that basically allows Russia to have like a massive presence in the South Caucasus again because their peacekeepers are the ones that are maintaining like the current land partition in Nagorno-Karabakh. So they're maintaining the um, Lachin corridor between Armenia and the bit of land that they've maintained. And they're also supposed to be sort of like uh, watching the land bridge between Nahachivan and Azerbaijan. So. Yeah, like I think um, Russia probably gained the most out of this outcome. Some are claiming claiming that Russia is letting this war continue as it wants to stay, say that this region is not for Europe to import gas from it. What's your perspective on that? Um, I, I I could see that being the case, but I kind of I feel like Russia wanted to kind of teach the um, Armenian leadership a lesson, and they also wanted to kind of reassert their influence because of Turkey's massive influence of like on like Azerbaijan. So I think that that kind of outweighs this like, you know, planned like uh, conflict in the, in the South Caucasus um, with regards to the oil and gas. I mean, I still think that these European countries will look to Azerbaijan regardless because even Israel, they, they um, like Europe and Israel see Azerbaijan's oil and gas resources as an alternative to both Russia and to the Middle East. Yep. I don't really see that changing. I mean, I think that they'd want to exploit that as, as much as they can. Like there have been plans for like um, gas connections to Europe this year that hasn't really faltered because of this war. They were still being like announced. There was still media coverage of these plans throughout mm. the conflict. So, yeah, I think that like, um, our, our Russia tried to make the best out of a bad situation with this peace deal and having boots on the ground directly now in the South Caucasus. So you were saying that they wanted to use this land as an alternative or the oil, sorry, as an alternative to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. What do you think on that? Like, is that 
does that mean that they might start to recede from the Middle East or will they still want to have influence there? Who's, who's they? As in Israel. Israel. Oh, right. As in uh, because they're getting oil from Azerbaijan rather than the Middle East. No, I think, uh, I think Israel has an interest in diversifying the countries that are friendly to it that have oil. So the two, well, one's not really a country, one's like Iraqi Kurdistan. Yep. It's not a separate country, right? It's still a part it's of still Iraq. Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one. And I think they get about uh, 75% of their oil from Iraqi Kurdistan. That's huge. Then there's Azerbaijan, of course. Um, so it would be in their interest to have like as diverse um, a set of countries to, to import oil from. Because what happens if, for example, the, the, the leadership in Iraqi Kurdistan changes and you end up with one that's far more pro-resistance and they start to you know, diversify who they export to and export less to, to Israel and then its prices go up. I mean, there's all kinds of considerations here. So I think Israeli energy security is really, really important here. That's one. And the other thing is like, hey, let's test out our drones in like an active warfare situation. So there are a lot of theories that this war is intended to cause more chaos around the Iranian border. Well, I mean, it hasn't, like what I just said about Iran, this hasn't been great for Iran. I mean, they've got like mercenaries from Syria and Libya on their border, you know, and some of them have even claimed to have passed through Iran to get there. So, I mean, it's not great to have these mercenaries that have their threats against like minorities in Syria, including Shia and Christians right on the border with Iran. I mean, that's not great. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like um, the issue is that now there have been some talk, there have been some like claims that there are skirmishes with, like, against Iran on that border. I, I don't think it's unfounded. I don't think it's legitimate. But like, you know, that's kind of, if you heard that, then you'd think, oh, okay, of course there is because Azerbaijan has been emboldened by this war. Yeah. You know, this is like uh, great for Aliyev. It's great for like the Azuri nation that they've been able to like, attack Armenia and get some land back. So they might be emboldened. I think there's of, been Azeri secessionist uh, activity in Iran. Yeah, yeah. true. So then that could, that could lead to, you know, like more favorability amongst the secessionists in, in Iran. You know what the irony of this is that during the Ottoman Safavid Wars in the, in the 16th century, I mean, they've, the, the, the conflict between Iran and Turkey, right, as in post-Ottoman Turkey. Yeah. Um, but, like, what I'm saying is that, like, you know, like, like this conflict between the, that we see between, like, Iran and Turkey over the region is, is one that goes back to the Ottoman Safavid Wars. And in that conflict, the Azeris were actually on the side of Iran because they were the Iranian ruling class. Yeah. The ruling class of Iran was Azeri. I mean, even today, the supreme leader of Iran is of Azeri background. Um, but that's their ethnic background. I mean, their their national loyalties are to Iran, and their primary language is Farsi. So now, like you have this peculiar situation, even within Azerbaijan, where they don't tolerate like um, people who are too uh, close to their Shia identity. Yeah. Azerbaijan. So because they prefer to have more of a national, like we're Turks first and then Shia, right? Whereas if you if you're living in Azerbaijan and you say, look, you know, like we're, we're Shia first, then they'll look at you with suspicion because you look like you're more loyal to Iran. To Iran than Turkey. Yeah. That's the tension between them. Yeah. Basically. So how does this tension help Israel or benefit Israel in the region, like on the border of Iran? Well, because they have this like massive ally in the form of Azerbaijan that they can use basically. Like they have mutual interests. 
so um, like uh, Azerbaijan doesn't, they don't have hangups about being allied with Israel. You've seen like through this war, the Israeli flag has been waving with the Turkish and the Azuri flag. You know, they're open and they're happy about being allied with, with Israel. That's not even the case in Turkey itself. So then they have a lot of like um, support amongst the population and kind of like uh, opportunities to do whatever they want almost, you know. Like in terms of surveillance and like testing military and yeah, like influencing Azerbaijan's relations with Iran. And you know what's sad is sometimes like we, we know people uh, who are Armenian who have been writing for Israeli publications um, and I can understand, you know, uh, on the one hand saying to, to an Israeli audience basically saying, look, you know, we the Armenians and you the Jewish people, we have a common history of facing persecution and genocide, that kind of thing. Please, like, take our side. I can understand because you're trying to minimize the damage. You're trying to find some kind of ally in a difficult situation. That I fully understand. But at the same time, I have seen a fair bit of resistance bashing, you know. So, you know, we're also against Iran. This, this one article that I read, you know, like, basically saying we're, we're against Iran because Iran is like a threat to the West and it's a radical country that supports groups like Hezbollah, which is a threat to Israel, so you should support us, you know. You know, I think sometimes, you know, you have to draw lessons from the Good Samaritan, you know, like the story of the Good Samaritan in, in the Bible. It's like, who was the who was the Good Samaritan? It was the guy that was not from the same kind of group, in-group, as the, the person who was victimized in that situation, the guy that was beaten and left on the side of the road. It wasn't his own people that helped him. Right, it was like totally different people. Someone from the it. outside, exactly. And so it's like you look at the story of like you know the Christians in the Middle East generally. You know, it's like their you know protectors and defenders have been Shia militias more so than the Western Christians who have been you know support who who not that they're responsible for the actions of their governments, but they belong to the West, and the West has been supporting the destruction of these Christian communities in the Middle East, and it's the same for Armenia. And does Armenia have any existing ties with? With Israel at the moment, um, they they do because um, there's a Armenian quarter in Jerusalem, and there's like a population of Armenians living in Israel. Many of them fled in 1948 because Armenians traveled to Palestine after the 1915 genocide and set up there. There's been like a long history of pilgrimages between Anatolia and uh, like Jerusalem for Armenians. But like some of them st still live there and maintain the uh, Armenian quarter in Jerusalem. They've also got this shared history of persecution with like the Holocaust and the Armenian uh, genocide. At least that's what's like presented. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like when it comes to you know practice, like Israel is happy to support like another instance of persecution against Armenians with this war. They they didn't have any any kind of reservations about that testing their, their military capabilities. But yeah, like Armenians and yeah, they, they like have this kind of uh, connection to Israel on that basis. I think that as a result, like when this war started, Armenia recalled their ambassador to Israel or something. I'm not sure exactly who was recalled. It must be ambassadors. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen now going forward. Yeah. I mean... I mean, it's a country that's divided uh, internally because you have some people who are very pro-Russia. Um, and then we know Armenians, right? Many Armenians who are pro-Syria, pro-resistance. Um, I know communist Armenians, you know. Um, and then on the other side, you've got the, 
the Armenian lobbies in the West that tend to be very pro-Western. They tend to be um, uh, they tend to encourage good relations with Israel, that kind of thing. I mean, I understand. I mean, I'm not saying that Armenia should join the resistance axis or something like that. I mean, they have an interest in having normal relations with Israel. I get that. But at the same time, surely they should not be encouraging Western aggression against countries that would otherwise be their, their allies in a situation like this. Is there a case of naivety here from Armenia? Maybe, maybe. I, I think, think, yeah, I think so. Ahead. I mean, um, like some people I've spoken to over the past few weeks in this war have been saying Armenia have been pretty arrogant because they're un- they're unwilling to like like ret- like to give up any territory to Azerbaijan, but they don't have the military backing to have that position. It's like they think that they're Israel, you know, like you know, they've they've got this kind of um, like I don't know. I I don't personally agree, but it's been described as like arrogance in dealings with Azerbaijan in terms of negotiations. They're unwilling to give up land, but like, you know, they're ignoring this threat of a potential war while Azerbaijan's building up military capabilities. So that's the naivety, I'd say. And then like thinking that the international community would step in on their behalf in this war. Why? Like the US doesn't have the economic ties or interests to do that. The only country that does is Russia, and they've been alienating Russia with this recent government because many of the ministers involved have ties to Soros-backed organizations. So I think is that's, this from 2018 onwards yeah. with Pashinyan? Yeah. Tell us about that. So, um, yeah, in 2018 they had a so-called Velvet Revolution where Nikol Pashinyan took over from um, Serge Sarkisyan after like the previous government was widely accused of being corrupt and from stealing from the population, like main, like holding military uh, arms and military web, like, um, like military, um, what's the word? Just like gear yeah. within their homes. Like uh, they w- it was just repressing Armenia from bettering itself internally. That was so the, it was corrupt, but pro-Russia. Yes. And many of the people in charge had close ties to the Russian elite. Ever since 2018, many of these same leaders have been imprisoned by the current government because of their like, uh, accusations of corruption. And so now many of these people have been released in the last six weeks by this government in order to negotiate with Russia. You know, like, like Levon Petrosian. And um, yeah, it's just it's hilarious how during this war they tried to mobilize all of these different avenues that were close, like were being kind of suppressed in the last two years by this current government. Pashinyan's background is in journalism. He has like uh, ties to the West. I believe he studied in the US. I'm not sure about that. But many of his like um, ministers have, some of them have very overtly anti-Russian sentiments. So yeah. I don't know. I was kind of conflicted because I also saw that like uh, last year, Armenia hosted the Eurasian Economic Union in Yerevan and invited Iran. So I, I, superficially speaking, I, be- I believe that this government was trying to maintain relations with Iran and Russia. But then now I'm hearing that that wasn't the case and they were distancing themselves and isolating themselves, especially because of this war. All of this is kind of being investigated to its full capacity. And so, yeah, that's like the claim. Some Armenians claim that this government sabotaged Armenians, Armenia's capabilities in this war. Some of them claim that 
like Nicole Pashinyan himself wanted to kind of let go of the territory in order to turn west, like let go of this like kind of dead horse sort of situation. Mm. And then, but his son was fighting in this war. That's the thing. Yeah. Others claim no, it was like the corrupt elites that had kind of, I don't know, sucked Armenia dry for the past kind of, you know, 27 years or so, 26 years prior to Pashinyan. So now internally Armenia is divided and there's talks about potential civil war. I think like an opposition leader was arrested, accused of like um, plotting to assassinate the prime minister, Pashinyan. Like the president of Armenia has claimed that he only heard about the peace agreement by like from the press. So there was no like dialogue internally before it was signed. Mm. So yeah, now this is like the latest challenge for Armenia is what to do about this internal strife that was caused by the, the war and its fallout fallout. Many just want him to resign, even if he's responsible, like, even if it's like not responsible, like they kind of want to turn a new page and they want him to resign and to have an election as soon as possible. So there's a lot of confusion and internal strife due to this war. Yeah. And then they go ahead and sign a peace agreement. Yeah, it was because Shushi fell. Like uh, Armenians felt like, well, like um, the prime minister and the leader of Nagorno-Karabakh, they kind of thought that they had to. They like, that was their last resort in order to maintain any part of the region. At, at the risk of civil war now? Uh, well, they probably didn't anticipate it. They didn't think that far ahead. They thought the second largest city in Karabakh has fallen to Azerbaijan. We have to sign this thing. How big of an uh, impact will a civil war have in Armenia? Well, um, Armenia is already kind of wrecked by this war, by COVID. COVID has like increased within the country ever since the war started. They now have around 100,000 uh, Armenians that have been kind of displaced from, from Artsakh. Karabakh, they have to find housing for them, you know, like they're, it's just not not like, I mean, it would never be a good time but I don't, I don't think that it would, like many of them say this would be like the end of the country or something it's very dramatic, very drastic So will Russia get involved if a civil war does occur? I think Russia's job right now <coughs> is, is to make sure that there's, that like the, the front lines remain frozen so, in a sense, Russia is, uh, is defending Armenia, but at the same time, they're protecting Azerbaijan's gains because those gains are legal according to international law. I don't agree with international law. I think, I think all of that territory, because it's, it's historically, indigenously Armenian, belongs to Armenia. It's my opinion. But Russia basically is a very, you know, oh, we, we're protecting international law. So, I think that's what they're going to do. They're, they're probably going to be there for a very long time. But it's also kind of the, there was a document. Remember the Rand, the Rand, Rand report, report document, and it's it talked about how the United States should try and provoke conflict in the South Caucasus, because if they do that, then they can they can stretch Russia, and Russia is currently stretched. Now they've got peace pe peacekeepers there, which means that the Russians the, the Russians who are there are now vulnerable to Turkish um, aggression in the future. You know, so let's say you know. Later on, some new leader comes to power in Azerbaijan and they say, you know what, we, we didn't go far enough before, you know, like Aliyev sold us out. We should have taken back all of that territory while the momentum was with us, you know, like he stopped short, we should go ahead. And then if they were to then like, you know, march forward and they would eventually have to run in, they'd run into these Russian peacekeepers, right? 
Now, what's going to happen to them? That leaves them quite vulnerable. And so it really depends on, on, on Turkey's relationship with NATO, Azerbaijan's relationship with Turkey, and, uh, and Armenia's ability to balance these different sides off against each other. You're always in a vulnerable position when you're caught in the middle and you're trying to balance like east and west against each other. Mm. And so that's like, I mean, to the extent that I have criticisms of like the, the, the way that certain Armenians and maybe the Armenian lobby in Western countries have operated is that they've tended to be very, very pro-West. So they try and appease the West and say, look, you know, we're pro-Western too. We don't like a lot of the countries that you don't like. You should support us, right? But then what about the Armenians who have the opposite strategy, right? And who are trying to build... Uh, solidarity with countries like Iran, you know, like Russia, the, that have been on the receiving end of aggression from the West. So if you have like a mixed strategy, you're going to end up getting mixed results. You have to have one strategy and you have to stick to it, yeah. right? E- even if it's like a fully pro-Western strategy, you have to stick to it, you know? Mm. I mean, um, Armenia is not like Azerbaijan. There are around 10 million Armenians outside of the country split between Russia and, you know, the U.S., and they, they have their influences. They come from their own kind of, uh, you know, different mindsets for their upbringings in Russia and uh, the U.S. respectively. There are others like some in Australia, in Iran, all over the world. But the largest groups are from the U.S. and from Russia. They're complete opposites. Yeah, yeah. So they're being the, – the actual country itself is being pulled in two different directions between the Western interests and the Russian interests. But yeah, many people say that like this current war shows that Russia is more important. Like Armenia is in Russia's territory, like well, not territory, but their neck of the woods. They can't afford to be like throwing it all away to align themselves with, the, with Europe or the US. I mean, especially because those countries all have their own interests in Azerbaijan and Turkey. So why would they sabotage their their vested economic interests in order to protect Armenia? I mean, Russia is the, the country that's most likely to do that. I mean, I just want to say also that they've been saying that there have been some rocket launcher systems and fighting vehicles as part of the peace, the Russia's peacekeeping like deployment to Nagorno-Karabakh. So they're saying, why? Why are there these like offensive, like potential attack weapons mm. being deployed? So yeah, that also is like not known yet what Russia's role is going to be in that region so it looks like it's a bit of intimidation from russia but towards who well i guess maybe turkey Mm. because turkey's kind of asserted themselves a bit too much in the Mm. south caucasus well currently like we we, we're in a like before do you remember in uh, december 2015 when the turks uh, when turkey shot down um the the russian plane Mm -hmm. so after that you know some very peculiar things happened you know like apparently the Russians tipped off Erdogan about the, the coup that happened that, that was attempted in July 2016. And since then, Turkey and Russia have had pretty good relations, right? Like unprecedented. Now, this can turn, you know, uh, very easily because ultimately Turkey is still locked into this hard mil- military alliance with the United States in the form of NATO. So Turkey is an independent power, you know, like they... They can do things that, that uh, they can have, like in Syria, for example, they are um, against Western interests to a certain degree because they're against the, the Syrian Kurdistan, uh, the attempt at a Syrian Kurdistan. But, you know, in, in, in the South Caucasus, you know, they, they have a, um, 
there is a bit of an antagonism there with Russian interests because Russia has, what I mean to say is that Russia historically has always, you know, promoted itself as the defender of of Eastern Christians, you know, that's how it's always presented itself. So in many ways, like the Russian intervention into Syria um, within Russia was kind of presented in that kind of way. It's like, look at the Christians, they're under attack because of these extremists, you know, we have to um, fight to def- fight to defend these Christians from these extremists who happen to be backed by Turkey. And of course, Russia and Turkey have a long history of warfare. It goes back to 1566. Very, very old, right? So this conflict, like just because there's a period, like there's like a period of like, you know, rapprochement of like, you know, of uh, relatively friendly relations between Russia and Turkey now or cooperative relations between Russia and Turkey now doesn't mean that it's permanent. It can very easily flip and, and go sour. And that's when those Russian peacekeepers are, they are vulnerable. Oh, that's another thing. Um, uh, Azerbaijan, right before the peace agreement, like maybe seven hours before, it was reported that Azerbaijan accidentally shot down a Russian military helicopter on the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So that might be why Azerbaijan was so willing to sign that agreement as well. Maybe Russia had just had enough and they were like, look, we're not going to stand for this, you know, whatever, I don't know. They, they probably threatened to step in on the side of Armenia. That's, that probably is another reason why Azerbaijan signed it's another instance of like a f- accidental probably mm-hmm. so would there have been a bit of pressure from russia to get that peace treaty signed and, and done yeah i think i think uh i think so i mean they they would just prefer, prefer no fighting so they're not really concerned with the outcome of the war as long whether as it it's, so so long as like there's no violence right like they just don't want to be extended and that's their fear of being extended into a conflict where all of a sudden they're sitting ducks so Jay mentioned that uh, a couple of times that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this conflict. On the Armenian side, what kind of lessons could be learned? Well, now uh, the, the, the treaty states that Russia will stay there for five years before renewing like, um, the, the agreement, whether they stay or not. So now Armenians are saying, like, look, I think that all of this is a shame because that region was never really planned or meant to be separated into three states. Like Georgians and Armenians and Azuris lived throughout that region for so many years that this like violent kind of introduction of the state system there like had to lead to this kind of bloodshed. I mean, it's, it's difficult to negotiate that kind of, it's like um, those kinds of borders. Um, so now Armenia is saying we have five years to build up our military and fight again, you know? Then it'll be Azerbaijan who does the same. Like, I feel like it's, it's just doomed to failure unless they can kind of develop a dialogue of some sort. Or if kind of like um, Azerbaijan and Turkey stop with their anti-Armenian like, um, like sentiments, talking about how they want to relive the good old days, like their ancestors and conquer the Caucasus. Like that's Turkey, like that's Erdogan's rhetoric. It's kind of mirrored by Aliyev. So yeah, I feel like they have more to gain from a lasting peace deal where they can both kind of just settle with what, what, whatever land is allocated to them with the peace deal. With the current deal that's standing, like um, Russian peacekeepers are secure, like are the ones that are the guarantors of peace. Without them there, it would probably revert back to fighting with like Azerbaijan's huge like arsenal and, and backers. It would just be like, um, you know, I think like a terrible fate for the Armenian side. So yeah, that's where we're at. 
So if Russia, after five years, determines not to remain in the region, is that an inevitable, uh, inevitable conflict waiting to happen? That if, if Russia were to leave the region or... Yeah, in five uh, years. After five years. Yeah, the, the, I think there'd probably be another conflict. I don't think this is going to be over. I think this is just round one. Yeah. And I don't think the Armenians want it to be over. I think the Armenians have a legitimate claim to that land. I mean, including the buffer territory, yeah. you know, I mean, until, yeah. until Artsakh is recognized. So, yeah, both of them will, will keep persisting, I think, with their respective claims and their own kind of outlooks on the region until there's some kind of like lasting peace treaty, which seems unfeasible. <laughs> it's difficult because no, no side wants to back down. Yeah. You know, because if somebody has to make a compromise, you know, who, who does it, you know, can there be a win-win situation? I'm not sure. And Armenians are going off the legacy of the past hundred years, including their massive persecution in Anatolia. For them, it's like they've given up like, you know, Western Armenia, yeah, yeah. which is part of Turkey now. Mm. They've given up Nahachivan. They've been expelled from Baku and Sumgayet, which they were like, that was part of Armenia, you know, like ages, like in ancient times. For them, this last, like, it's like, like the last frontier. That's all they've wanna, got left. They don't want to lose any more. Whereas Azerbaijan, like the Tatar, present-day Azuris, entered the region in the 13th century. And they, the first time they've ever had like a standing state was in the 20th century. So mm -hmm. that's why, like, you know, they, they're coming from completely different backgrounds and, and like frameworks when they look at this conflict. So history has a massive role to play in this, in this conflict right now. Well, yeah. It seems, like, seems the case with every piece of land that's being taken away. Yeah, I mean, you know, the North Caucasus is relatively peaceful, and that's because there's an overriding Russian hegemon yeah. that kind of keeps things on an even keel between the different nations. North Caucasus has is even more diverse than the South Caucasus. You've got that's probably Chechens, how it was. That's Chechens, Ingushetians, yeah. Dagestanis, um, uh, Ossetians, yeah. uh, all these different nations, right? None of which are Russian, but it's it would be if if russia would no longer rule those territories then there'd be the possibility of conflict mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a shame because it's a beautiful region the whole region north and south caucasus mm -hmm. but it's just like these mountains are just you know like audience for this ongoing like struggle for territory fighting over rocks and soil it's just a real shame <laughs> Really is uh, just like every other conflict could, we have. I wish I could end on a positive note. I, I don't think I don't there think is a positive good. with this conflict. Yeah. Like the I the, I couldn't see like I'm coming from a purely neutral stance. Like I don't um, have any affiliations with any of the nations, but I don't see any positive to this peace treaty or the conflict mm. as you know it's been going on for a few months now. But I think that's the case with any conflict. Mm. Uh, there are no positives. Well, it's still ongoing. There you go. Thank you very much for joining me, yeah. And Jay, thank you very much for giving us a bit more information to what's going on. And we hope to have you again soon. Thanks thank for you. having us. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcasts where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.